When North Carolina comes to mind, one might think of the Wright Flyer, or one might think of Bojangles even, or Cheerwine, or the NCAA. But I don't think most people think of and respect North Carolina as the paranormal hotbed that it is. Today I intend to change that narrative, but before we get into it that deeply, I would just like to give a quick warning because the next 30 minutes of content is going to contain some pretty graphic imagery and it's going to be somewhat raunchy in humor as well, you see. I cannot address very macabre things such as death and destruction without making a couple jokes about the situation and if that's not the type of thing you're looking for, this might not be the episode for you. I will be following all rules and regulations written by the FCC as this is in fact on radio. However, this is going to be an adult-oriented episode, so this is the final warning. I'm going to get dark. I'm going to get into it. We're going to talk about some dirty history. That is your warning. Without further ado, let's begin our tour of Haunted North Carolina. Taking one look at a North Carolina history book is going to make it abundantly clear that the state is probably haunted as... The fact of the matter is that North Carolina's history is a history based on civil wars, betrayals, murders, and piracy. Now I'm sure a bunch of you in the audience are like, oh yeah, I forgot, pirates, that makes it all clear. And yes, it really should. Pirates being in North Carolina should be the number one reason you think it's haunted. And hey, some of you are probably thinking, alright, that's a two for one special, I came here for ghosts, and now I got ghost pirates. Yes, North Carolina has tons of ghost pirates, and when you look at that, one of the first things we're going to head to is the East Coast, because oh my god, some gritty stuff has gone down on the East Coast of North Carolina. And our first stop on the East Coast of North Carolina is Buxton, North Carolina off Hatteras Island. You see, Hatteras Island is home to a lighthouse known as the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. And I could just tell you the straight up history of this lighthouse without any ghost stories and you'd probably think the place is cursed, but we'll get to that in a second. This lighthouse is 198 feet tall and it is actually the tallest lighthouse in all of North America. Given that this is a lighthouse, you probably already know exactly where I'm going with this, but for those of you who aren't as intuitive, I'll go ahead and spell it out. Hatteras Lighthouse is built on the coastline of what is referred to as the Graveyard of the Atlantic. I will simply let that sink in for a second. <laughs> Get it? Anyway. The request for a lighthouse was actually first made in 1794 by Alexander Hamilton himself after his ship reportedly almost crashed off the coast of North Carolina, and the lighthouse finished construction in 1803. Here's the problem with the original design for Cape Hatteras's lighthouse. While construction was finished in 1803, the actual light for the lighthouse was made in 1802. And when it was first lit up, they very quickly realized that the light was practically invisible in bad weather, which, you know, is the only time you actually need a lighthouse. And for almost 70 years, that was just considered good enough. Meanwhile, the nearby waterways were garnering a reputation as, well, the graveyard of the Atlantic. These nearby waterways were so treacherous that not only would ships wreck out there, but then the ships that would go to rescue people would typically also be lost to the waterways as well. It created a really messy situation where saving one ship could potentially mean losing multiple ships and people didn't even really know what to do and the place garnered such a reputation for death that pirates actually began luring unsuspecting sailors to this location as a means of getting their ship to wreck and then being able to go and loot it. These pirates would basically find someone who wasn't from the area who didn't know where they were going and the pirate would give them a false direction and tell them to go through this area and hopefully crash, so that then the pirate could go and loot their ship afterwards. 
it actually created a pretty ironic self-fulfilling prophecy type situation where a pirate would send a ship out to crash and then immediately crash themselves attempting to loot said ship. Which is just hilarious when you think about it because you think it's the 1700s and a pirate is hearing about this location where ships 100% are going to wreck and then the pirate's like, yo ho ho, challenge accepted. But that's beside the point. In 1862, the already ineffective Lighthouse Light was destroyed in events related to the United States Civil War. And I imagine little to no one was affected whatsoever due to the fact that, you know, they were already crashing for 60 years at that point. In 1868, however, in a beautiful display of competence, the government decided to rebuild the Lighthouse. And they rebuilt it taller, yet proceeded to use the exact same model of light that they used the first time. Now, if you don't believe that this lighthouse is cursed yet, just based off that alone, I don't know what to tell you. But here is some closure. In 1871, 68 years after the final construction was finished on the first lighthouse, they decided to install a more modern version of the lighthouse light. With better technology and better visibility, they finally thought that the problems with this lighthouse were going to be over. But if the problems had ended there, I definitely would not be talking about this right now. Whether it be unfortunate coincidence or paranormal forces, in 1871, beach erosion problems began getting so bad that there was no longer sand at the base of the lighthouse. And for a time, it was actually decommissioned. The next 50 or 60 years was not at all kind to the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Water all but consumed the base of Cape Hatteras's lighthouse, and for a time during the 1930s, it was actually almost completely concealed in a giant metal cage with the intent being to preserve the structure. The Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was dormant for a while and did nothing of real historical significance until 1942, when the tower was actually seized by the United States Coast Guard over threats related to German U-boats in World War II. And then, in 1950, almost 150 years after the original construction of the lighthouse, the tower was relit after enough sand had somehow accumulated at the base of the tower to allow it to be safely entered. But then the beach erosion got so bad that in 1999, they actually moved the building and all surrounding buildings inland and put them all in their original formation. So the Cape Hatteras lighthouse that you can go and visit today actually sits in a different spot from the original location. With that subtext out of the way, let's get into the nitty gritty because I can absolutely assure that no one listened to something called Haunted North Carolina on the radio with the intention of listening to me talk about beach erosion. So what is actually haunted about Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, you might ask? And to that, I would ask you, dear listener, what is not haunted about the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse? It is literally beside the graveyard of the Atlantic. It is the beacon of light that failed and led so many sailors to their doom. Sailors such as passenger ships, sailors such as pirates, sailors such as others that were trying to rescue one of the other two. You had all sorts of death and destruction surrounding this lighthouse, but believe it or not, it gets deeper than just that. In 1812, Theodosia Burr Alston set sail from South Carolina to New York City. She was the daughter of third U.S. Vice President Aaron Burr, and she was married to Joseph Alston, who was the governor of South Carolina during the War of 1812. And as you might have guessed, her ship never made its proper destination. At only age 29, Theodosia Burr Alston was lost at sea on the coast of North Carolina, 
and to this day no one really knows where the ship went. It is believed that the spirit of Theodosia can still be seen walking the coastline in a white dress looking off towards the horizon longingly, hoping to arrive at a destination that will never come. Another incident that has sort of evolved into local legend around Cape Hatteras is that of the Carol A. Deering. The Carol A. Deering was a ship in 1921 that surfaced on the coast of Cape Hatteras without a soul on board. As far as the story goes, the ship washed ashore without anyone on it, and it had food set out all over the ship as if everyone on board was getting ready to eat a meal and then suddenly vanished. The vessel was on the way back from Barbados and sported a crew of 11 sailors all of which were nowhere to be found when the ship was discovered. What's so weird about this is that this was a five-mast commercial ship, and it was a bit of an engineering marvel for its time, and the fact that absolutely no one came back to claim anything from the ship leads you to believe that something more sinister happened to the crew. The final detail involving this ghost ship that seems to make conspirators' minds explode is the fact that this ship actually sailed straight through the Bermuda Triangle on the way back. So, if not ghosts, maybe aliens? The final piece of key information as far as Cape Hatteras goes is the fact that there are reported sightings of someone referred to as the Grey Man. Now, the Grey Man is a bit of a debate when it comes to people in Cape Hatteras because a lot of people say that the Grey Man was a sailor that died in a bad storm, but other people believe that the Grey Man is some sort of deity. Either way, the story goes the same way. Before big storms, the Grey Man will appear and walk around the lighthouse, and the Grey Man is stated to serve as some sort of weatherman, warning people of upcoming storms with 100% accuracy. With that, our stop at Cape Hatteras comes to an end, but not because of a lack of paranormal sightings, simply due to a lack of time within this show. I encourage you to check out plenty of the other ghost legends around Cape Hatteras and even the lighthouse itself. Like, I couldn't even get to or find further details on the fact that apparently there's been some sort of ghost cat spotted around the Cape Hatteras lighthouse, but I really couldn't find any real dirt or background on any sort of cat that might have haunted the place, but uh, yeah. I found a lot of mentions of a ghost cat at Cape Hatteras Lighthouse as well, but I couldn't verify anything, so I didn't want to put that one in the episode as an official entry. That being said, I encourage you to Google it yourself. Keeping with the coastal theme of Cape Hatteras, we are headed down south to Wilmington, North Carolina, which, if you didn't know, is also haunted as <laughs> Wilmington is one of the oldest cities in North Carolina, and it's actually surrounded on either side by water. You see, Wilmington has a river on one side, and it has the ocean on the other side, which all my budding young paranormal experts will know is definitely a bad sign when it comes to having ghosts all up in your grill. Many sources of mythology claim spirits and ghosts to be completely unable to cross any sort of water. I will let you do the mental math on that one. Wilmington is an old city, and with that comes a lot of history and a lot of hauntings, and you can find evidence of hauntings in all sorts of places, from people's houses to bars and random streets. But the main attraction, the main hotbed we're going to focus on when it comes to Wilmington, North Carolina, is Fort Fisher. That's right. The thing you know today is a lovable aquarium actually is one of the greatest hotbeds of paranormal activity on the entire North Carolina coast, and here is why. 
Fort Fisher was actually the home to one of the bloodiest battles on the coastline in all of the Civil War. And since we've already established that the water on all borders of Wilmington makes it what is effectively a ghost trap, it's very easy to see why there has been many sightings of both Union and Confederate soldiers when night falls at Fort Fisher. But honestly, does that come as any sort of shock to anyone whatsoever? Like, I mean, come on, it's an old Civil War fort, and there was a brutal Civil War battle fought there, so who's surprised by the fact that there's going to be some ghosts of Civil War soldiers at this battlefield? No, 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 this isn't the dirt. This isn't what you're here for. Here is the true story that's mind-blowing about Fort Fisher. You see... The vibe at Fort Fisher in January of 1865 wasn't necessarily a great one. At this point in the war, the Union had all but won the entire thing, and the Confederates had realized that there really wasn't a lot that they could do left. And Fort Fisher was the last Confederate stronghold on the entire coast. Fort Fisher was the last opportunity the Confederates had to even communicate or receive supplies or try to make alliances with anyone in the outside world. As you can imagine, life as a Confederate soldier during this time time period was tense. And a lot of responsibility amongst this tension fell on the shoulders of one man and one man only. And that man is Major General William H.C. Whiting. General Whiting saw the situation for the Confederates as what it was and very quickly understood that the writing on the wall was clear. Staying in Fort Fisher any longer meant painting a giant target on your back and General Whiting made a request for extra men that was never granted. General Whiting worked frantically to do anything he could do to potentially stop this massacre from coming, but he knew it was probably already too late. And after a brutal three-day-long affair, Fort Fisher fell to the Union. It was nothing short of a massacre. Over a combined 1,000 soldiers were either killed, injured, or ended up missing, and the weight of all of this fell heavy on General Whiting. This was a massacre of tons of men that he actively tried to prevent and failed to do so. Defeated and injured, General Whiting was taken up north to New York City where he was held in captivity until he passed away a few months later. His request to be buried in his hometown of Wilmington was denied and he was actually buried up in New York. And if you know anything about final resting places, that is a huge no-no. But it does get better. A few years later, his reluctant wife actually dug him up and brought him back home, where he now resides at his final resting place in Oakdale Cemetery in Wilmington, North Carolina. Don't you just love it when a story comes full circle like that? Nowadays, General H.C. Whiting is one of the most common paranormal sightings in all of Wilmington, North Carolina. And this isn't just people saying, oh wow, I saw a ghost, it must be General Whiting. No, I want you to stop what you're doing and I want you to Google a picture of this man, because this man General H.C. Whiting is quite literally unmistakable for someone else. You're not going to see someone and think, oh wow, that's General H.C. Whiting, unless you literally see General H.C. Whiting. Like seriously, go stop. Go Google, look at the man. Look at how incredible his mustache is and tell me, do you see anyone else that looks like that? Do you see anyone that would walk around looking like the apparition of that? The one thing about this ghost story that makes me believe it so much is the fact that I don't think anyone else would look like him. This is the most distinct ghost I've ever seen. To the point where even if there isn't a ghost, this is still pretty dang impressive because it means that there's some dude with a huge mustache who walks around in Confederate war regalia at nighttime at Fort Fisher. And either way, that's a pretty dang interesting story. I could have easily done an entire 30 minute special on specifically the hauntings of Fort Fisher, but there's so much information to cover that I didn't want to cover too much because I didn't want to do a disservice to the information I only briefly touched on, so I wanted to cover what I did cover in full detail. With that being said, let's branch out of Fort Fisher and head into the streets of Wilmington because there's quite a few miscellaneous haunts all throughout the city. 
For instance, there's also an alleged haunted home right on South 4th Street. As the story goes, Emma Baldwin was the wife of a dentist, and she was a bit of a traditionalist. She seemingly would disapprove of unwed couples and any other sort of behavior that would be seen as not exactly good old-fashioned southern behavior. By hook or by crook, Emma Baldwin's judgment somehow surpassed the very boundaries of life and death, because now her apparition will still show up in the house, allegedly judging your character. It is stated that if Emma Baldwin likes you, she will appear and give you a dime, and if she finds you a bit raunchy, she's gonna give you a tooth from her husband's dentistry. And it's one of those things that's just so oddly specific that you feel like there has to be at least some truth to the inception of it. Because I have grown up in North Carolina and I find it exceedingly easy to believe that there was a southern woman back in the day who judged people so hard that she was able to come back from the grave simply so that she could continue judging people. Now if my story about being haunted by the judgments of a southern woman didn't seem scary enough for you or, you know, even hits a little too close to home, you are in luck because right across the street from Emma and her final resting place is the St. James Cemetery. And this cemetery is the very cemetery that a young, budding victim of colonial medicine by the name of Samuel Jocelyn woke up buried alive in. Doesn't that suck? As the story goes, Samuel simply passed out and fell off of his horse and appeared dead enough for long enough to wake up inside of a box. Which is honestly more terrifying than any ghost story on its own. Like the idea that these people were roughing it so hard out in the 1700s that if you looked dead, they just they just thought you were dead. I would genuinely be terrified to take naps during the 1700s because I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. Anyway. As the story goes, Samuel appeared to his friend Alexander in the night, begging to be dug up. And in a horrified frenzy, his friend obliged and immediately went to dig up his body, only to find Samuel rolled over in his coffin. His fingers were bloody from scratching the roof of the coffin and his face had turned purple due to a lack of oxygen. If that isn't some of the effed up stuff you came to this show to listen to, I don't know what to tell you. It is thought that Samuel's spirit still haunts the graveyard to this day and if you go to the gate of the graveyard, they say that you can still hear scratching at the roof of the coffin. Heading inland from the coast, the next stop on our tour is Asheville, North Carolina, and this city is a very historic city. And this next stop is one of the biggest tourist attractions in all of North Carolina. The Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina is the largest privately owned home in all of North America. The Biltmore finished construction in 1895 after an almost six year long construction project and it has a very, very rich history. The Biltmore Estate was commissioned after William Henry Vanderbilt II visited the Asheville area in his youth and fell in love with the place and he decided to commission what he referred to as a modest summer home. Now I'm not sure if you know anything about the Vanderbilt family, but there was absolutely nothing modest about their bank account. When construction on this modest summer home was completed, the Biltmore Estate was at 178,926 square feet inside. That's the equivalent of four acres simply within the walls of the house. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the Biltmore Estate was the absolute pinnacle of high society. The place has huge dining halls, they hosted all sorts of lavish parties, and they even have a giant indoor swimming pool that's actually the subject of one of the hauntings of the house. The place has a billiards room with a hidden secret door that goes to a smoking room. The Biltmore has everything a Vanderbilt could ask for. The house was passed down through generations and in the 1930s during the Great Depression, 
After a request from the local government to try and increase tourism, the Vanderbilts opened the Biltmore Estate to the public. And ever since the Biltmore Estate went public in the 1930s, there has been a steady stream of sightings of paranormal activity. And it's less a question of what is reported haunted in the Biltmore Estate as more as it is a question of what isn't reported haunted at the Biltmore Estate. It seems that every single room and hallway in the Biltmore Estate is connected to some sort of story and some sort of history and some sort of sighting. Tourists and staff alike have reported a myriad of different paranormal occurrences that have happened at the Biltmore Estate. It's very common for people to experience random cold spots throughout the house and various off-putting smells throughout the house, and some even claim to see apparitions in the house. There's claims that the staircases are hotbeds for these types of activities because staircases act as some sort of bridge between our world and the afterlife. People report hearing laughter and the clinking of glasses in the dining hall, and others have claimed to hear the hustle and bustle of the staircases staff still diligently working in the basement preparing the night's meal. One of the more famous sightings on the property is that of Mr. Vanderbilt himself, who can reportedly be sighted in his favorite library during the rainstorm. Apparently this library was one of the hot spots in the house for Mr. Vanderbilt because he would spend a lot of his time there to the point where his wife would typically have to go remind him to go entertain his guests. Miss Vanderbilt can even be reportedly heard to this day still walking to her husband's library and calling his name out. With this simply overwhelming amount of paranormal sightings, the first question one might ask is what dark and gritty awful thing happened at the Biltmore Estate? It would make sense to assume that since there's an overwhelming amount of paranormal activity that there's got to be quite a few restless souls at the Biltmore Estate. So what exactly is it that happened at the Biltmore Estate that was so awful to cause all these souls to be restless? Like, what type of tragedy struck the family? This is what I found. As we've already established, the Vanderbilts had an absolutely egregious amount of money. In today's terms, the inheritance that William Vanderbilt received was that of around $2.1 billion. And that $2.1 billion was essentially just passed down from Vanderbilt to Vanderbilt. William Vanderbilt was the only Vanderbilt who actually turned the money he received into more money. William Vanderbilt reportedly actually doubled the money he received within the first years of having it, and subsequent Vanderbilts just kind of spent it. By the time that money made it to William Vanderbilt's children's children, there really wasn't that much left. The Vanderbilts seemingly fell complacent, and it's kind of hard to blame them. I don't think you'd want to go get a day job either if you were simply born and were already wealthier than a lot of people in America. But it is my theory that William Vanderbilt's apparition still shows up at the Vanderbilt estate because He's a little restless over the fact that his family kind of blew all the money. William Vanderbilt had the Biltmore built as a monument to his accomplishment and the fact that he had increased all of the money that his father had given him. So it makes me wonder how he would feel about subsequent generations using that estate as the primary source of income and allowing public tours. But that's simply a theory up to interpretation as none of us have actually met Mr. Vanderbilt himself so there's no telling what he would have liked or disliked, you know? He could have very easily been proud of the fact that his family continued doing the Biltmore thing as well. I honestly find it entirely plausible that the only reason that William Vanderbilt's spirit still apparates in the house is because he was simply that proud of the Biltmore state. So that explains the ghost of William Vanderbilt himself, but what about all the other ghosts? What about all the servants that are allegedly heard, or what about all the partygoers? With the amount of sightings per year, you would think that the Biltmore has people built into the walls. So naturally, I started digging. It was my mission to find the deep, dark secret of Biltmore State. 
I researched the personal lives of each subsequent Vanderbilt after the estate had been built, and I researched all the history of the building of the Biltmore, and honestly, my trail kinda ran cold. I was expecting to find some sort of shocking revelation or some sort of brutal murder that took place on the Biltmore estate, but outside of unconfirmable rumors, there was not any official record of anyone being savagely killed or betrayed or any sort of really anything crazy happening on the Biltmore estate. I researched everywhere I could and there was absolutely nothing, no evidence of tragedy on the Biltmore. So what does that mean? Does that mean that there aren't ghosts on Biltmore? Does that mean that the reports are completely unjustifiable? Well, I found something. I figured that the hauntings of the Biltmore estate were tied to the house itself, and that's why I did so much research on all of the people that lived there, because that's typically how these types of hauntings work. But then in my research it dawned on me that what I was looking for wasn't in the Biltmore estate at all, and possibly has nothing to do with the house itself, but rather, what's under the house. In preparation for the Biltmore's construction, William Vanderbilt purchased over 700 different pieces of property. This included 50 farms, and at the peak of it spanned over 195 square miles of land. And it was by no means a hostile takeover. This was being built at a time when the American economy wasn't that great, and a lot of the property owners that William Vanderbilt brought from were very happy to sell the property as it had been in their family for a while and had been kind of old and run down. It's when I started looking at the history of this purchased land that I realized the bombshell that the Biltmore estate is hiding. There is actually evidence of quite a few different colonial settlements that were on the land that the Biltmore is built on. And that is when the realization hit for me. You see, back in the day, burying bodies wasn't an exact science, and it wasn't really uncommon for family members to just kind of bury their dead family members in the backyard. And on old colonial land like that, it's not really that uncommon to find an unmarked grave with an entire family buried inside. The Biltmore Estate is built on the grounds of at least four known graveyards. But given that over 700 separate pieces of property were purchased, I am willing to bet that the number is actually a lot higher. So here is my theory. I do not believe that the spirits at the Biltmore estate are that of the friends and family of the Vanderbilts. I don't believe that the people that can be heard partying in the dining rooms and swimming in the swimming pool are that of people who actually went there during their lifetime. I believe that the Biltmore is simply enjoyed by the spirits of those whose final resting place were disturbed by the construction of the Biltmore. It makes a lot more sense in my head to think that, you know, People who lived a fairly humble life one day realized that their final resting place was being disturbed and came back to the place they died to find that there was a huge mansion there now. And with the spirit of William Vanderbilt still running around, who knows, maybe he invited them to the party himself. Whatever you choose to believe, I think the history of the Biltmore and all of the reported sightings are enough to make it a pretty compelling entry on the list. And if you're a fan of conspiracy theories, I also found evidence of a ghost cat at the Biltmore estate as well. And if you remember from Cape Hatteras' lighthouse, there just seems to be a lot of unverifiable ghost cats. If we haven't uncovered any conspiracy theories revolving actual ghosts, and if we haven't uncovered anything truly paranormal, I think we have all learned from these ghost stories in North Carolina that people in North Carolina tend to just hear stories and then add a ghost cat. With that, ladies and gentlemen, our ghost tour of North Carolina comes to a conclusion, and I hope you found it at least remotely stimulating on your brain. I had an absolute blast doing this type of thing, because if any of you listening on the radio have heard the Hippie Samurai show that plays on the radio, 
you know that I typically don't do something this dark. I had a blast being able to showcase a different side of my content, and I hope you all enjoyed it. If you would like to give me any sort of feedback or suggestions, head on over to hippiesamurai.radio on my Instagram account, and I will talk to you about anything. I'm WDCC's Hippie Samurai, but after this, you can just call me Chance, and always remember to stay spooky.